Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. So one of the uh, best parts of the program is when we bring in uh, visiting speakers like uh, Judge Thapore who spoke this afternoon. Uh, we get together with our uh, Tocqueville fellows and just have a conversation. Um, and so I'm delighted that the fellows can make it and that you could uh, join us as well. We have a tradition in the program, which is we always have a student introduce our, our visitors. So uh, Soren, who's a senior, Soren Hampton from San Diego, will uh, introduce you. So, the Honorable Amy Coney Barrett is a circuit judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. She's a Notre Dame Law School alumna and has taught here as a member of the law school's faculty since 2002. Judge Barrett teaches and researches in the area of federal courts, constitutional law, and statutory interpretation. Our second guest today, the Honorable Court, is a circuit judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He is both a former district judge and a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Kentucky. Both judges with us today are trailblazers. Judge Thapar was the first Asian Article III judge in U.S. history. And while Judge Barrett is certainly not the first female appellate court judge, she certainly must be the first female judge with seven children. <laughs> it is my esteemed privilege to thank Judge Barrett and Judge Thapar for joining us today. Please join me in welcoming them. Again, as I said, uh, the, uh, the Tocqueville program, the Constitutional Studies program, which I run, we, we're focused on our undergraduates. And uh, it's really the best part of the program, just to have a conversation with, with the students. So um, feel free to I'll ask you some questions. I'll ask you uh, some questions. You can ask one another questions, um, you know, whatever we want to talk about. Um, Judge Sapar gave a, a lecture this afternoon uh, at the law school uh, about religious liberty and originalism. Uh, tell us about originalism. Uh, are all judges originalists? Do you have to do you have to be an originalist to be to be a judge? What is originalism? Uh, what are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? So you don't have to be an originalist to be a judge. I think we both think of ourselves as originalists. Um, so the way I the, the easiest way to explain it is as I talk to you all, <clears throat> you're interpreting my words. And you're giving them the meaning they have today, not the meaning they had 30 years ago and not the meaning they're going to have 30 years from now, but the meaning today. Same thing with letters, recipes, legal documents. If you want to understand what happened at the time, you have to interpret them, the words, at the, using the meaning of the time. And so that's what originalists do. And it's wonderful to have colleagues who are originalists. Uh, Judge Barrett or Amy just wrote an opinion that was fabulous, I told her that, and it was about the Second Amendment, and it was a hard issue. It was about whether certain felons can have a Second Amendment right or whether that right is extinguished. And you can see as you read this opinion, first it's very well written and I recommend it to everyone, um, but you can see that Amy worked through to get what she believed the original meaning compelled. Not what she wanted, but what the meaning compelled. And that's the beauty of originalism, that you have no preordained view. So at a time when some consider the Second Amendment kind of under attack, she didn't treat it as an orphan, as some have done, 
Rather, she understood what Justice Thomas has said, that it's a privilege of citizenship. And as a privilege of citizenship, she understood she had to go through the history to figure this out before she took, or effectively the courts took the right away, right? The second right, the second amendment, fundamental right, away from the people. And she worked through it. And the nice thing about originalism is we all show our work. So as you read it, she cites her source material. She talks about it. How does that help? Well, now the next judge comes down the road, me, and say, I've got a case like that. Now I can just pick up her opinion. I can work through the sources. I can check her work. And if she's right, then I'm compelled to rule that way. And so whereas what you see in the courts today is some judges, non-originalists, will say, well, what's my policy preference? And that's why they are treating it as a constitutional orphan. That's just one example of originalism. But the point is, is to go back to the original meaning and figure out what the American people agreed to when they gave the government permission to run the country. I'm going to add one thing to Amul's excellent description of originalism is to say all judges, even if they're non-originalists, consider the original meaning. That's kind of what we consider a standard modality of constitutional interpretation. So even judges who consider themselves pragmatists, like say Justice Breyer, takes into account what the original meaning of the document was. The difference between originalists and non-originalists is that for originalists, where the determinant meaning, where the meaning is determinate, where it can be identified, it's controlling. It's not just a data point. For those who are non-originalists, um, there are other factors in the mix that might trump the original meaning, um, surpass it. I think there are also disputes even among originalists, but certainly between originalists and non-originalists about what level of generality the text should be written, uh, read at. And the higher a level of generality you read text at, then the less determinate you know, the, the uh, meaning is. And so the more room there is for other kinds of factors to kind of fill in the gaps. And you would both consider yourself originalist, broadly speaking, within yes. that? Yes. Yeah. What is it that led you to find originalism compelling? You know, when I entered law school, I didn't have a firm sense of, of what I was. Um, but as I read cases and as I um, took constitutional law, that's, I came to believe that that was clearly the right way to approach it. It struck me as the most democratically legitimate, even as a law student. And then certainly as I went on to become a law clerk and a practicing lawyer and a professor and now a judge, um, I, I think that's true. I mean, what claim does the law have to our obedience, you know, except for the fact that it was enacted, became a law in the case of the Constitution, ratified um, by people who then, through that act of ratification, made it a law. And obviously, we didn't participate in that act of ratification. You know, we weren't around. And, you know, if many of us had been around in the late 18th century, wouldn't have been permitted to participate anyway. But in a continuing society, you know, one of the premises of a continuing society is that each generation takes the law as they find it, and it's democratically legitimate because we have the power to change it if we want to. If we had no power to amend the Constitution or to make change, then this whole dead hand of the past argument would have more force. But, you know, you can't reinvent the wheel, you know, 
each, each new generation, each day is not a new day. You can't have a continuing society. And so if we're going to have a democratically legitimate society, you, you don't want a mule and I you know, just imposing our will on you. Um, I think the original meaning is, is really kind of clearly the way to go. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything Amy just said. The things I would add to it, and Randy Barnett says this, and I stole it from him, is it's the document that governs those who govern us. So when people say, well, I didn't participate in that. Why should I be bound by it? You're not. Amy and I are, because we take an oath to this Constitution. And the words specifically are this Constitution. And then it says in the document that this Constitution is supreme. And so, and we're governed by it. <clears throat> and what that means is we're governed by the words and concepts, and I agree with Amy 100%, the generalities and other things you have to think about. But we're governed by the words and concepts included in that Constitution, not one we choose. And what I say a different way than Amy saying it, some of you have heard me say it, is it, you don't want to be governed by our values till you ask our kids what that's like, right? <laughs> and so, and I think most of you would come back and say, no way. <laughs> and so it's the document that governs those that govern us. And if you believe that, and I take an oath to it, then I'm governed by it. The other thing about the dead hand of the past, which a lot of people mention, that comes, that's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. What they don't include is the response by James Madison. And James Madison said, no, we, they aren't governed by the dead hand of the past. It's a debt against the living. Meaning everything, all of our toils are what we're passing on to you. This is the benefit of our, our hard work and there's a mechanism to amend it, there's something else. It's called legislation. And Justice Scalia always used to say, if you don't like it, go convince your neighbor. Go start the process of either legislation or amendment. But don't come to us because sometimes you might not like our values. And courts have made horrible mistakes in the past. Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, Korematsu. I mean, I can, I can go down the list. And so just remember that we're not perfect either. And so the system works if people would adhere to it. And I do agree that everyone starts in principle with the original meaning. But I think they quickly, some quickly move off of it and impose their values on society and others stay true to it. Do, do you have to, does every judge have a judicial philosophy? Some expressly eschew any judicial philosophy. So um, Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit you know, has said no judicial philosophy. And, and Judge Posner, who was on the Seventh Circuit, is, is now retired, um, similarly was kind of against, against philosophy, against having any judicial philosophy. I think that's a mistake. I think not to have a philosophy is a philosophy, really. Um, you can call it not a philosophy. But if your approach is, you know, I have a grab bag approach, which just kind of pulls, you know, um, pulls different interpretive tools to do what makes sense, then that is your theory. Um, I think that one function of confirmation hearings um, is to elicit what that judge's or that nominee in that context theory would be, because I think, you know, the Senate's role in advice and consent, I think that's something that the Senate, you know, all of the questions about specific cases, the senators know that nominees can't answer those questions. But questions about what your judicial philosophy is should absolutely be on the table because that's what 
the senators need to know to fulfill their constitutional duty, and that's what their constituents, that's what the American people need to know is if, as Amul says, you know, those who are making decisions, you know, you're the governors of the governed, you have a right to know what yardstick they're using to make those decisions. And b both of you have used the word duty, so you, you tie your, the, the commitment to originalism really to a commitment to constitutional duty or constitutional fidelity? A absolutely. Yeah. If you t I mean, and I agree that everyone has a philosophy, maybe not expressly. Um, my philosophy may be a grab bag philosophy, like Amy just described, and I like that description. Um, but <clears throat> that is a philosophy judges may have. What we believe, or what I believe, and Amy and I agree on this, I believe, is that the oath has consequence and that you have to figure out what that means. You have an obligation, and I agree with Amy, you have an obligation to answer if someone asks, what is your philosophy at a hearing? I wanna explain and defend all of our colleagues in saying why we don't say, because you may hear it and think, well, why can't they answer whether that's rightly or wrongly decided? As an originalist, it's really hard to do that because you have to do the work. Remember how I talked about Amy showing her work? You have to do the work, you have to work through it. Those of you who heard, heard my speech today, heard a speech of someone that's not 100% sure yet, right? And what did I say when someone pushed by the professor and others is, I would have to go back and really do the work. And I started that process. But you can't answer it. The other thing is it's not fair to the advocates if you prejudge everything. So just because I think something doesn't mean when I do the research, I will be right. And I think we've both found that in, in being a judge. You come, you read the briefs, you think, oh, this is easy. This is the answer. You get to argument and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh. It's a lot harder than I thought. And then you go back and you tell your clerks, okay, get me this source, this source, this source. I want to figure this out. So are you going back and sort of reading original documents from the founding era or from the uh, 19th century? I think it depends on the question. Yeah, so I had for the Second Amendment case that Amul is talking about, I had to because there's not a lot of precedent um, out there because the Supreme Court's Heller decision, which um, held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms is relatively recent. But for Amul and I at the Court of Appeals level, so much of our work is dictated by precedent, either from the Supreme Court or from our own court, that I have not had many occasions outside of this Second Amendment opinion myself to really delve into the original sources. So that case was very difficult, but the fun part of it was, you know, that I got to, to do some of that. Have you had much of yeah, that? Yeah, so very, my answer is almost identical. And when, but on the district court and the court of appeals, what I have done is done the research when presented with the question and then published my work and said, boy, here's what the Supreme Court said. So I did it in the Fourth Amendment context. And I, took the opportunity to explain what search means in the Fourth Amendment context and go back and read original sources and explain it in opinion and then say, but the Supreme Court has a different view. And then I applied the Supreme Court view to the case at hand. I was dissenting in part and concurring in part. So it gave me the liberty to do both and say, here's what the answer would be under the original meaning. And here's what the answer is today under precedent. But yes, we have an obligation 
to apply the precedent faithfully, we take in, it's, that is also included in our oath. So if, if uh, you believe the original meeting dictates answer A, but Supreme Court precedent says answer B, Got to go, go with B. B. Got to go with B, yeah. Yeah. So let's say, let's go back to the Second Amendment just because we're talking about it. And what Amy talked about was <clears throat> the fundamental right, right, to bear arms. Let's say Amy and I both agree that her decision's right. Now, she was in the dissent there, but it was an original question before her. Let's say the Supreme Court comes out differently. Even if we believe they're wrong, we are bound to follow that, no matter what. Even though I'm on the record, you know, saying otherwise myself, then after that, you know, I'm bound. So the next time you heard, the, is the, if the Supreme Court uh, decided the other way that you did, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you could effectively end up writing against your own opinion. I will have to write against my own opinion even in my own court. I mean, if this question, I was in the dissent, it was a panel decision, 2-1. Um, if a similar question comes up in the Seventh Circuit, I will decide it consistent with the way the majority did and not with my own view. That's my obligation. And both of us believe that that's encompassed within not only our oath, but the rule of law, right? right? Look, we give it our best shot. We explain it in dissent. But you have to respect your colleagues, too, and the fact that the way the rule of law works is once there's a decision, we have to follow that. Can't we can't be a free-for-all. Right. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, otherwise it's so panel determinative, which it can't be. It's not fair to the, and let me, let me explain why, and let me explain, this maybe bleeds into a little bit of textualism, and, um, but I also have a different view than Judge Posner, who Amy brought up on textualism, and I've written about it. And my view is you have to follow the text and interpret it, and same thing, very consistent. Um, but it also provides certainty to society. And so do our decisions, so that now you can operate in the confines of that. And if judges keep changing, then the American citizens can't operate in a society where they understand it. And if we say we're going to follow the text, then you can read the text and make a determination, and lawyers can give you advice. And as long as we don't change what the text is, which we aren't entitled to do, then it provides consistency, it provides an intelligible principle, and all those other things. Uh, you mentioned uh, becoming interested in originalism or finding it compelling in law school. Um, how, many, how many seniors do we have? Are any of you off to law school next year? Within the next three or four years, several of you probably will be, go to law school, yeah, maybe. What, what led you to, to law school? How did you become interested in the law? Um, I debated, so when I was in your shoes, when I was a senior, I had majored in English literature and minored in French. And I had debated about going on to get a PhD in English literature and becoming a university professor. Um, so I was choosing between doing that and going to law school. And I took both the GRE and the LSAT, and you know, I can remember sitting in my dorm room with pro-con lists. And Ultimately, I chose law school because I felt like it offered some of the same things that I loved about English um, reading and writing. Um, although, you know, the, the material is not always as interesting, right, as, <laughs> as, as my English literature. Um, but I, I liked that law, in a very direct way, had an impact on society and our social structures. And I felt like working in the law, not that. English professors don't serve a very valuable function, and, and I'm, 
I think beauty and literature and reading are crucial, so I don't want to be heard to say otherwise, but I felt like my own set of inclinations and talents and interests led me to want to do law um, just because of its role in shaping society and social impact and stability. Did, did you go straight from undergrad to law? I did. Yeah. And what about you, Judge Clark? I went straight through too. I've told some of the students. I, I wish I would have done differently and taken a couple years. It was my one chance, and so I definitely advise that. Um, but I, I chose law school for very similar reasons, although uh, it's maybe a reflection of my parents, it, it, what I did in college, and then ultimately law school. And so my, my parents are immigrants, and maybe I'll get into that more. You'll see I refer to my parents a lot. My dad, by trade, was an engineer who opened a, or bought into a small business and is a small business owner. My mom was a social worker, and so I had both the capitalistic side of me and the kind of more philanthropic uh, save society side of me. And they came from my parents. And so in college, I majored in economics, which is in the School of Management at Boston College, which is the practical side of me. And then I majored in philosophy, which kind of like, how am I going to save the world? How am I going to figure out philosophy? Those types of things. And it was always a tug in my life as kind of what to do. And, and during that time, my friends talk me, and I talk about this when you ask me for advice, my friends talk me into taking a business law course. And I took the business law course and I loved it. And I said, this is philosophy kinda on steroids, right? <laughs> and so I thought, hey, my, a couple of my friends were going to law school, that's why they took the class. And I'm like, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to law school. And so I decided to go to law school and I thought I can Make money and do good. I can be both my mom and my dad all in one. And so it was a unique opportunity to do that. Uh, my wife would say I kind of forfeited the making money when I stayed on the public service side, but we can talk about that. But. Do, you, do you enjoy being a judge? I do. It's been a switch. So as Soren said, you know, I'd been on the faculty at Notre Dame um, for 16 years, so I'd spent the bulk of my career as a law professor, and you know, the longer that you do something, the better you are at it. I mean, it was, you know, I knew how to teach. I was an established scholar, so you know, and, and Jesse and I have seven kids, and so everything's always a delicate balance. And we had our schedule down with my law school job, so any change, any switch, you know, is going to be work. Um, you know, just, just in making the adjustment and getting on the learning curve. And because Amul came from the District Court of the Court of Appeals, he, he had, you know, gosh, it took me a long time just to get the insurance and all of the benefits stuff, <laughs> like all the practical things um, flipped over. But I do like it. So I've been working really, really hard in the last two years just because of the learning curve. Um, you know, I've had everything from, you know, technological problems and computers networking and chambers to just figuring out how my court does things. Um, I taught public law, which is mostly constitutional law. Um, I also taught civil procedure, um, evidence, you know, a lot of the uh, nitty-gritty litigation classes, but I did not and did not practice, say, immigration um, or social security. Um, I knew my way around criminal law from my time as a law clerk, um, but I didn't practice it. So I'm getting exposed to a lot of areas of law that I didn't have substantive experience in before, and it's really fun. I mean, I really like the opportunity to see other areas of the law, learn new things. I also, you know, I, I liked very much and plan to continue once I have a little bit more time publishing um, scholarly articles. But writing judicial opinions, the Second Amendment behemoth aside, um, 
I like now, I mean, scholarship is often you know, a, a multi-year process to produce something. And for judicial opinions, the writing is entirely different. You know, you're getting things out much more quickly and it's much more discreet. And it matters a lot to the litigants. It, it's, I, I feel like um, sometimes as a law professor, you feel like you send out your article to the law reviews and no one ever reads it. Um, but now I feel like when I'm writing, I'm doing something that's really a service to the parties before the case. It's a service to those who need to know what the law is for the sake of stability. And I want to do a really good job so that as lawyers who are reading my opinions to advise their clients later read it, that it will be clear and will establish a clear rule of law. So I really love those aspects of the job, you know, even though I got to say I'm not getting a lot of sleep right now. Yeah, I, I love what I do, and I've been doing it for a while now because I was a district judge for a long time, and I've been on the Court of Appeals for a couple of years. It, for me, it's, so everything Amy said, it's especially important that we get out opinions that are hopefully thoughtful, and readable is important to me, that the parties, not the lawyers, the parties can read it and understand it because it's their litigation. And it matters to them. And you've got to remember, a lot of times in this country, we talk about the bigger principles, and we like to think about the bigger principles. You always have parties in front of you. And that case matters to them. And so why do I love being a judge? So let me walk back just a second and talk about when I went to law school. So now you'll hear again about my parents. My dad said, why would you go to grad school to become an hourly employee? <laughs> right? Because we all work. By the hour, and this is what a businessman thinks about. Like, who wants to work by the hour? And I thought that was interesting. And so, but the one thing I learned from two parents that were immigrants that came over from India was about the greatness of this country. And one of the things I'm going to encourage Amy to do, because it's my favorite thing to do, is a naturalization. And in the naturalization, it's the only time you go to court and everyone leaves happy, okay? But there's something else about it. I was a kid in those ceremonies. I, so when kids are screaming, I always say, don't worry about your kids. I was one of those kids. And I've been appointed by the president now three times to three different jobs. I mean, think about that. You can be the child of immigrants in this country and you can do anything. And so I feel like for a family that's been so rewarded by the American people and by this country, it's an opportunity to give back. And that is so valuable to me, to my family, and to my parents. And I called my dad when I got appointed to the federal bench, and I said, I don't have an hourly job anymore. No more time. <laughs> <laughs> your, your parents were born in, in, in India. In India. And you were born here in the I States? was born in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, growing up. You, you, you must have been one of, uh, you're the only Indian in your high school? The I was. At the time I started, I was the only one in my junior high and high school. It was a wonderful place, Toledo, Ohio. I loved growing up there. I have some of the greatest friends from there. They, everyone treated me really well. Um, that's been pretty consistent throughout my life. People, uh, as an aside, people ask me about when I was a district judge in eastern Kentucky, and people say, oh, the people are this or the people are that. I said, no, they're not. They said, well, you're a judge. They're going to treat you differently. I said, I'm not a judge when I'm driving in shorts and a t-shirt to a courthouse in eastern Kentucky 
and I go into a restaurant or gas station. I'm an Indian looking guy that's going in and they treat me like gold. They don't know I'm a judge. I don't, unless you all tell me otherwise, I, I don't think I look like a judge. I think judges are the gray haired, you know. <laughs> and so, um, but growing up, it was just, it was a wonderful community to grow up in. I was different and I realized it. And early on, maybe the kids were like, you know, who's this guy? What's he all about? And I remember, you know, I was kind of awkward, like a lot of young kids are, but I hopefully grew out of it. Uh, and I, I loved it. It was a wonderful community to grow up in. And the people are fabulous. Okay, Judge Barry, you mentioned seven kids. Yes, there can't yes. Be too many of your colleagues that have seven kids, and they're all at home right now? They are all at home. Our oldest is a senior, so as of next year, we'll be down to six at home. Only six. Um, yes, so we, we have seven children. Five of them are biological, and then we have a son and daughter that we adopted from Haiti. So it's a very full house. I was one of seven growing up, and I loved having a big family, so I always wanted to have a big family. And my husband was an only child and had been very lonely growing up, so he too wanted a big family. So, yeah. I, I'm going to anticipate the students' questions. How, how do you do everything? Um, so it's funny. When Jesse and I got married, um, I didn't foresee, and you can't. I mean, you can't see what the future is going to look like. But I had no idea what traits he had that would enable the life that we have now to be possible. Um, he, my, my mom didn't work. She stayed home with kids. My, 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 my dad was a lawyer. And so that was what I had seen. That was the model that I had seen most up close was a stay-at-home mom. So I didn't have a model in my mind. Um, I mean, I had certainly seen women who were working. Some of my, my friends' mothers worked, so I had seen it. But you know, what you really see, the model that you know best is the home that you grow up in. So I didn't have a preconceived idea of how it would look. And as it unfolded, you know, as we had additional children, as we decided to adopt, you know, our adoption of John Peter was a little spur of the moment. Um, as things unfolded, Jesse really stepped up. We didn't really have a conversation like, hey, we're going to be locked in, like you're going to do X and I'm going to do Y. We just each shifted and assumed different responsibilities as it made sense. So at some point, Jesse started doing most of the cooking and grocery shopping. Um, and that's great. At first, I kind of resisted it because I liked it and I still do enjoy cooking. But he just said, you know what? I think this will make your life less stressful. I'm going to take this on. So he does that. Um, you know, we live in South Bend where, you know, traffic is light. You know, South Bend has its pluses and its minuses. But, you know, the, the commuting times are pretty good. So he does most of the driving, the carpools and the kids' doctor's appointments. Um, and then we'll switch. You know, when he gets busy at work, now he has changed jobs and he's traveling more. So then I, I'm doing more of that when he's gone. So I think the thing that's made it possible is it really being a team effort and having a husband who has been, you know, willing to be a complete all-in partner and, you know, doing all of the things around the house and child rearing and, and, and everything. Okay, I have to follow up. The, the spur of the moment adoption? <laughs> so, um, we adopted our daughter, Vivian. We, we have our oldest daughter, Emma, who's a senior, and then we had our daughter, Tess, who is now a freshman in high school. And we adopted our, our daughter, Vivian, um, who is Tess's age. They're our fraternal twins, we like to call them. They're both freshmen. Um, we always wanted to adopt another. We thought, um, we had, after having been to Haiti, 
we really had a desire to do that. We thought it would be good for our entire family to not have Vivian be the only adopted child. We thought it would be good for Vivian to also have another sibling, and we just felt very moved to do that after visiting. So we had started the process for John Peter, but for a variety of reasons it had fallen apart. They told us that it wasn't going to happen. We had then subsequently had our son Liam, who was a total handful, and it would have overwhelmed me to think about adopting at that point. So the part of me was relieved because I thought there's no way we could handle it. Um, so the paperwork was just languishing and they had said he wasn't going to come home. And then the earthquake in Haiti happened. Um, and in December, I had said, we ought to just close the book on this. They've told us that it's not going to happen. Um, so why have this loose end? It had been dragging on for two or three years at this point. So we had mentally and emotionally moved on and then the earthquake happened. And one of the paperwork snafus that had held it up was on the United States side and they lifted that requirement um, and said any children who had adoptions in process could leave. And um, they called us and said, would you still be willing to take him? This was early January. And we said yes. And interestingly, this was right around the time that Keenan's family was getting ready to go to Saudi Arabia. And I had been on Saturday night to a farewell party for her family. And I had just had one drink. And the next morning just didn't feel well. And I thought, that's weird. I wonder, you know, what was that? It turned out our daughter Juliet was on the way. Um, and we had to make the decision. I'd, my husband was on the phone with the adoption agency uh, trying to figure out the details of going to pick up John Peter in Orlando. And I said, um, hey, guess what? Um, I'm going to have a baby in September. So we had a very compressed amount of time to decide if we were going to go through with it, um, going to go get John Peter from Haiti. But that's not, that wasn't really a decision. I mean, like we were going to say, oh, never mind, you know. But we had to take a step back and think, oh my gosh, we have a nine month old, you know. Three days ago, we thought our family was probably complete at four, you know, and we have a nine-month-old. Now we've just kind of agreed to, to go to Haiti this week and pick up John Peter. And by the way, you know, Juliet, Juliet will be joining us <laughs> in September. So it was, and I did not get a maternity leave when John Peter came. So it was a very um, intense time. And so Jesse, really, that was actually the time when I think. He took over all the grocery shopping and you know the, the cooking at that point. He really kind of stepped up and said, okay, you are totally stressed out. You know, I'm gonna do a lot of the stuff. So it was, in, it was very intense, but I wouldn't do it any other way. And this was January and I can distinctly remember throwing on my you know, long winter heavy coat, walking up to the cemetery and sitting on one of the benches and just thinking two things, um, well, if life's really hard, at least it's short, <laughs> looking at all the graves. <laughs> and then I thought, um, but in context, when you think about the value of people and the value of life and what's really most important, like what you can pour yourself into, that raising children and bringing John Peter home were the things of value, you know, of the greatest value that I could do right then, you know, rather than you know, even teaching or being a law professor, you know, which I was at the time, that that was really what was the most important. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of my decisions and a lot of my moments have happened at Notre Dame, often in that graveyard, actually, just kind of, I think, walking, when I walk up to campus and walk past her to walk through it, I think it crystallizes your thinking. What year was the adoption? Oh, gosh. Um, 
it was 2000 and I've got to think how old Juliet is. So Juliet will be nine, so 2010. And by that jump, he's not your youngest, and Juliet's not your youngest? No, Benjamin is. So Benjamin. yeah, yeah, then Benjamin came after Juliet. And Benjamin has Down syndrome. So if, if we thought things were crazy with that um, rapid family expansion with the kind of the triplets coming up, yeah, Benjamin was born, Benjamin is now seven, almost, no, he's six, almost seven. He'll be seven in a couple weeks. Um, and that has been, I think it's probably the thing in my life that's, helped me to grow the most and that's pushed me the most as having a child with special needs. So since Benjamin was born, I've met some people who had, you, you very quick, it's a pretty small community of people with children with Down syndrome. And you kind of get to know, South Bend's a relatively small town, so I kind of know most of them. And there are some people who have had, um, received the news of the diagnosis and completely taken it in stride. But that was not Jesse in my experience. It was very difficult for us. Um, and in some respects, still is. We weren't expecting it, and we didn't know what it would mean. And it has been challenging. I mean, there are definitely hard things about it. He's still not really, he can understand a lot, but he's not speaking very much. Every child with Downs kind of develops at their own pace. So it's not clear, you know. But I think I've learned so many lessons about myself, about what's important in life. And when I think about Benjamin, um, so every night before bed, John Peter, Liam, and Juliet, our three youngest, have to say one thing they're grateful for. And I would say that six out of seven nights, they all say Benjamin. Um, I just think there's, there are difficulties. I mean, I think there are obvious difficulties, right? And the therapies that we have to do and, and trying to teach them to communicate, um, things that are really hard. But I think that the effect that it has on my other children I think what it teaches Jesse and me about unselfless love, it's really valuable. So um, I gave a talk a couple months ago and I chose as my theme, the obstacle in your path is your path, becomes your path. And I think sometimes we see things that are very difficult or that are burdens. And you know, Benjamin's diagnosis definitely derailed us off what we thought life was gonna look like, what we thought his life was gonna look like, but in a way that we can't really understand or appreciate, but we see unfold every day. This is part of, it will be the most important thing that we do, probably. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult, but this is, you know, this is our path. Yeah, this is our path. We should open up uh, the floor to questions from from anyone and any, anything you want to talk about. Don't be shy. It'll be boring if you don't ask right. questions. Well, first, I want to thank you for coming and everything. As a uh, economics and philosophy double major, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> I'm a family from an immigrant family of seven. It's very wild having such esteemed positions. Uh, my question is uh, if a judge is committed to combating judicial activism, that is to say, um, refusing to insert their own personal policy opinions into the decision, are they, in a sense, stuck with these uh, precedents that have been tainted by decisions that did insert uh, policy preferences? Is there anything done to reverse that? So. Uh, so first, great question, and it's a very thoughtful question. One, candidly, I hadn't really thought deeply about before, but one thing I do 
is I will immediately, if I recognize that, I'm not afraid to write alone. So write the opinion or join the opinion, but then write alone to point out the problems with the prior precedent, either to encourage my own court to revisit it en banc or for the Supreme Court. And I feel that's part of my judicial duty. Different judges have different perspectives on this, but I was willing, even at the district court level, to point out where there were errors in precedent, especially when it affects individual liberty and things like that, where people's liberty is being taken away. I think it's important that we do that if we have drifted from the meaning of the text. And I think it falls within our obligation. But like I said, I respect my colleagues who feel like, no, we're strictly bound by it. We shouldn't criticize our prior precedent. I try to do it respectfully. But I do it nonetheless because I feel like it's part and parcel of my responsibility. So you, so you can be bound by president, but still criticize or point out what you think are the problems with it. Yes, and I, I'm not shy about that. I want to add one related thing, and I don't think this is something that Amul would disagree with. I want to be careful when I say, you know, I'm committed to originalism and I don't want to insert my policy preferences into the law, that I don't want to give the impression that I think, oh, originalists would be immune from that. So I think that every judge has to really guard against it. So one thing that I do, actually, I was, I was just doing it, is I was um, thinking about a case, resolving a case today. I try to put myself in the shoes of the party that I'm going to rule against. And so as I'm writing the opinion, or as I'm trying to decide how I'm going to vote at conference, I imagine that it was my daughter, or me, or my husband that was in that situation, and think, could I still reach the same result? Not as a matter of emotion, because obviously I would want to reach a different result if it was my daughter or me or my husband, but could I respect the reasoning and am I really doing it in a way that smokes out any kind of policy impulse that I have to go the other way? And of course, that's not gonna be perfect either. Judges are humans and they're infallible, but I think everybody has to come up with mechanisms like that, like to try to guard against you, know, you imposing your policy views on the law. And you know, Justice Scalia used to say, and it's right, and in my you know, almost two years on the bench, I've already had this happen. If you don't write decisions that you disagree with, the results, not that the reasoning, if you don't reach results that you don't like, you're not a very good judge, you're doing something wrong. Because you shouldn't like the result in every case you decide. Yeah, that, that was the theme of your talk earlier today, and yeah. he not only said, you're not a very good judge, you're not being a judge at all if all you're doing is reaching the policy preferences you like. So we all have checks on ourselves because Amy's right that we're humans and you can engage and protect, you can either engage in the originalist enterprise and still allow your policy preferences to infect your decision making or you can not engage and allow it. And so another thing I do and I agree, I love Amy's theory of let's put myself in the losing party's shoes the other thing I do is if I do have a bias, I'm not afraid of it, I tell my law clerks and I say, okay, your one responsibility is not to let my bias interfere in this decision. So you law clerk are tasked with that. So when I send you an opinion, you better make sure there's no way, you better check it. And we have a multiple layer process to check our opinions, to make sure my biases don't get involved. And I remember a case specifically, I worked with one of my greatest law clerks and she was phenomenal. And I told her, I said, 
it was a case involving fraternities. And I said, I don't like fraternities, okay? That's just, I'm happy to say that at Notre Dame where they don't exist, but I say it publicly. And I just don't like what goes on. I don't like what I read about them. And I told her, I will, you know, my bias is against this. You have to check that bias. And she literally would strike, she said, Judge, you don't like adverbs, and here you've got an adverb. Or things I was doing in the opinion, or even the result she contested on a certain part of the opinion that I was reaching the wrong result, and she was right. And so it was interesting to work through it with her and see that and then have the other law clerks check. And so you've got multiple layers if you'll take advantage of them. The one thing that's most important, I can't stress it enough for an Orangelist, is to be humble. Mm -hmm. And recognize our fallibility, but also recognize that our instincts might be wrong. It's hard work to do it. But if you believe that, and you believe in the greatness of the country and the greatness of the American people, which is what, especially Justice Scalia's originalism, as you heard me talk about earlier today, is all about deference to democracy, right? What did Justice Scalia say? Some of you heard it. I'd rather, if it's a question of policy, I'd rather have nine people randomly chosen from the phone book than the nine justices decided. What, what else should we talk about? Um, Judge Rivera, I know you clerked for Justice Scalia and also on the law clerks. I'm not familiar with whether you clerked, but I was guessing. I was wondering if you could speak to your experience as law clerks and how that impacted your career and discernment as a lawyer and then as a judge. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll speak to the mentoring that I received from Judge Silberman on the D.C. Circuit and then Justice Scalia. They're both great writers. They're both originalists. They're both textualists. And so they really shaped how I think about the law. Um, Justice Scalia, I mean, working for Justice Scalia uh, is quite intimidating um, because he was brilliant and he always, I mean, he would just walk in and ask you questions and you had to be ready at any time, even if it wasn't your case. So you had to always be on your toes. And the way that it works when you're clerking is law clerks write first drafts of opinions. So imagine how it feels to hand a draft of an opinion to Justice Scalia, you know, who's known to be one of the best writers, you know, um, in the court's history. So it really motivated you to be a really good writer. <laughs> um, so I learned a lot, and then I learned a lot about how to mentor. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm implementing it perfectly, but I, I saw the importance of it because they did it for me. Um, so it was an invaluable experience. Did you ever get a joke in that he included? A Scalia, are you responsible for any good Scalia barbs or anything like that? His barbs are so one of a kind that some of the opinions that I wrote, you know, I would have something that I thought was kind of funny, but then he would just take it and he would make it, you know, put it in his own words and make it so much better. Oh. Can I redirect the question for you, Judge the Park? Because you told me yeah. something right before we started that was really interesting about your career tra trajectory and 9-11. And I, I think that the students will find this very interesting. So. Okay, so I did clerk, and I'll answer that at the back end, because I'll, I'll tell you. So I was a federal prosecutor in D.C., and um, I was having, I got offered a great promotion. And I called my wife to tell her, and I said, I got great news. She said, I got better news. I said, okay. Do you want to hear my news? She said, sure. So I told her. She said, that's great. Can you do it in, back home in Kentucky? And I said, no. And she said, we had Zach. I'm pregnant with Carmen, and I'm having morning sickness, and you're not around. 
Remember about the teamwork concept? I hadn't gotten that down. And as we started having kids, I realized that it was a team. And so my wife said, we're moving home. So I said, okay, I'll go to a firm. And I went to a firm. I thought, okay, I'm gonna make money. I'm gonna provide for my family. And on 9-11, I boarded a plane to Los Angeles. And we were on the plane and the pilot came over and said the president's ordered all planes to land. And I said my prayers and I told the Lord if I, if I hit ground, I'm gonna go back into public service and never leave. And so we, got, we landed and I put in an application back to be a federal prosecutor and I never left. My mom had moved away too from her calling, which was ironic independent of me. And she opened a restaurant that was fabulous in Ann Arbor, an Indian cafe, it was delicious. And after 9-11, she decided to work with troops. And she started off working in the army with Green Berets and then eventually worked with troops with PTSD and used her social work degree and that's what she retired from. So we both did that. Um, I didn't realize you were on a plane. On a, so you were, you were on a plane. On a, I was on a plane. We got redirected to St. Louis. Wow. And I got down. The worst part of the story, I got to tell it, because I love my sister-in-law. So my wife's family is wonderful. It's a huge family. They're all wonderful. Big Catholic family. And I just love them. And it's so much fun. You know, for all the hard work Amy and Jesse go through now, I've stayed at their house. It is a lot of fun. I mean, their family is fun. And they're loving and they're caring, and they raise kids the way kids should be raised. Like, you know, these kids, they're happy, but they understand, like, how a family works, and they chip in, because when you have that many kids, Kim's family's identical. They're just like it, a big, Catholic, loving family. And I'm on a plane. Kim is, remember, still pregnant, right, because we had just moved home. She is, has Zach, who's a one-year-old, and she's busy. Her sister, who we spend all this time with, I never let her forget it, calls her and says, isn't Amul on a plane today? Her name's Linda, and Kim says, yeah. And these are when the planes are flying into the towers. She said, you better turn on the TV. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so she panicked. Of course, I got down, and the first thing I did was call her, and- And you were able to get through? Through? Yeah. Yeah, because remember the cell phones were all jammed because so many people were trying to call. Everything was jammed. You had to use the, they aren't even familiar with them. These phones where you put quarters in and you <laughs> dial the number. <laughs> and, and I called our home line. So it was landline to landline. But yeah, I got through and. Uh, and you were determined right then you're going back in the. I, I got down on the ground. I kissed the ground. I thanked the Lord. I would see my wife and kids again and see Carmen born, and I said, I'm gonna go back into practice and I'm gonna hunt these suckers down if that's what the president asked me to do. And so, it, ever since then, I've stayed in public service, I vowed, and I told my wife, I said, you know, those dreams of us having money, just forget about it. <laughs> um, now, she, you know, she went back to work and she's doing the lion's share as she, of bringing, doing that type of stuff, but she's, She's an amazing person, and like Amy, I mean, one of the keys for all of you is, as you get older is 
that teamwork is so critical because it really is a team. Um, and you've got to work together in so many ways you won't anticipate. To clerking, if I may answer that question, because I want to encourage everyone that has the opportunity to do so. And I did, and I did for two Carter appointees, both civil rights icons. Um, Judge Spiegel, who did, so they were such great mentors to me, irrespective of the way we may have seen things a little differently. He was a Marine in World War II. He was Jewish Marine in World War II and a fighter and desegregated the Cincinnati public schools, was a kind of civil rights lawyer and became a district judge. And Judge Jones, who was general counsel of the NAACP a little after Thurgood Marshall and was on the Sixth Circuit, still, he's still living, thank God, and I get to have lunch with him once a month. And they're um, both of them are amazing people. Judge Spiegel did a reading at our Catholic wedding. Remember I told you he was Jewish. And Judge Jones just did my investiture. And it, they're, they're mentors. We see the world differently. Uh, we, we approach cases differently. But the one great thing about the judiciary that maybe doesn't exist enough in society isn't anymore is we can disagree without being uncivil. And I wish that existed more in society. I wish society resembled the judiciary in so many ways. Because we'll sit down, we'll discuss a case, we'll disagree, and we'll go write our opinions, and we'll move on, and we'll go have dinner together. And that's one of the great things about the judiciary, and I hope that never changes. I agree. You find this with your colleagues as well. Oh, absolutely. It's not personal. Um, it's, it's absolutely not personal. You know, the, we all wear the black robe because personalities are not supposed to be involved. That depersonalizes the situation. So yeah, it's you, you write, you, you write a dissent, you know, you, you go out to lunch, you decide, you go to conference, you cast your votes, you cast your votes to be different, and then we immediately go to lunch and talk about our kids. And, you know, it's, it's you can't function in a court. You know, you have lifetime tenure if you're an Article Three judge. So kind of like a very, it's a, it's a marriage to, to these people in some respects, right? You have to, to get along and respect one another. And there are standards of decency that make it enjoyable and, um, and, and a mole's right, I wish, were more widely accepted. Yeah. Let's get some more questions. Yeah, go ahead, Christian. Um, this is a question for Judge Lepar. Um, you mentioned that you were a prosecutor uh, before. Um, and in the role of a prosecutor, you're arguing to a judge. Um, and now you're on the other side being argued to by prosecutors, uh, which is an interesting transition. Can you, can you speak uh, a little bit about that, the challenges, and uh, maybe what, which role you like better? Yeah, I loved them both. They're very different. So the great thing about being a federal prosecutor is you work for the Department of Justice, and the goal isn't to win or lose, it's to do the right thing. And you can go home every night, put your head down on the pillow, and know you did the right thing. And if you can't do that, you didn't do your job that day. A judge is very similar in that regard, but dif different in kind. What I found, especially on the district court, so I held my old office, the office I ran, to a very high standard, because I said, I know how the sausage is made. I know you can do things the right way every time. So I held them to high standards as they should be held. What I found much different was as a prosecutor, it was much easier to ask for a sentence than a hand down a sentence. 
And I used to sentence on Mondays. And my wife, and I'd struggle all weekend with what sentence to give. And Kim said to me, you're such a miserable person over the weekend. Can you please move your sentencing day? And so I moved it to Thursdays, but I couldn't at first figure out, it was such a struggle, and it's always been hard, don't get me wrong, sentencing people is always hard for anyone that cares and, and loves humanity and understands. And what I figured out that helped me is as a person of faith, I understood I'm not judging the person because I thought, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? I could have made some mistakes and gone down the wrong track. And you're not judging the person, you're judging their acts. I left it to God to judge the person. And I always told them, I said, good people make bad decisions. I tell my kids this. And those decisions have consequences. And that's how the system works. Once I got to that point, I think I was in church praying when the Lord spoke to me and said, you know, don't worry, I got you. And I finally understood, it dawned on me, I don't know how people without faith do it. It allows you to do your job better. Yeah, it allows me to do my job, judge the acts, and divorce the fact, keep separate the fact that someone else will judge the person. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to judge the acts, because there really are good people on the wrong side of the justice system. And the reason is you go in, especially in Kentucky, where we've, I'm not saying there's not good people everywhere, but um, people who get injured, get prescribed opioids, become addicted, and then sell them to fuel their habit, get caught up in a conspiracy. Now you're in federal prison. You know, and you see those people, business owners, all kinds of people. And so as a prosecutor, it was a lot easier because you were just asking, like you judge sentenced this person. I never felt the weight of that responsibility until I became a judge. And that was the most striking difference to me. We, we don't have much time and I want to get as many questions from the students as possible. So maybe we'll go through more rapid fire for a couple more uh, questions. Yeah, Patrick, go ahead. Uh, recently, uh, in regards to our deference and other cases, the courts had to reach questions of uh, how much judges should be expected to sort of become experts in particular policy areas for cases. In your experience, how frequently do you have to become very rapidly very knowledgeable about a particular policy or policy area? How difficult is that? How do you go about it? I have not had to do that. I mean, um, I see some administrative law cases, but those are primarily directed to the DC Circuit. So those kinds of agency policy questions are not ones that the Seventh Circuit docket is very heavy on. Yeah. and. So a little different than the answer to your question is, we are generalists. And so in every case, what I tell lawyers, if you're a lawyer before you become whatever you want to become and you decide to go down this path, is I think of the movie Philadelphia, which you're too young to remember, but Denzel Washington has this great line. He's a lawyer in the movie, and he says, explain it to me like I'm in kindergarten. And that's lawyers have to get immersed in it and be able to explain it to us, the generalists, whatever their specialty is. And we have to be able to understand it. To get that immersed, whether you're a trial lawyer or an appellate lawyer, you've got to understand it backwards and forwards, and then you've got to explain it to me like I know nothing. And, but 
we try to, in every case, we try to become an expert in whatever that area is. We never accomplish that, but you, as lawyers, they can help us by writing good briefs and giving good arguments. And this is one of the things you said so, is so interesting because you're expecting Yeah, learning new things well. all the time. Yeah. What, um, Johnny, I saw your hand, yeah. Um, thank you again for both, uh, both of you coming. Um, and Mr. Barrett, obviously, regardless of what the congressman, woman whose name escapes me as of right now, talks about your horrible, evil dogma that lives within you, <laughs> I think that your track record as a judge, lawyer, mother, and person speaks for itself, and that god-awful dogma. Yeah. <laughs> um, my question is, if the argument is that originalism and textualism is the best way to promote juris, uh, or judicial restraint and not judicial activism, how do you respond to critiques about Plessy versus Ferguson, where many of them argue that the originalist perspective indirectly upheld segregation in a way? Well, one thing that it's important to understand about originalism, sometimes people caricature it and say all originalists would all, will always get it right because there's always one answer. You know, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas are both originalists and they did not always agree. So the fact that Plessy, you know, has some language in it that sounds originalist does not, it's not an indictment of originalism, it's just an indictment of that opinion, they just did it wrong. So originalists can make mistakes just like anyone, originalism is not infallible. So I, I don't think you can point to Plessy and say, oh, therefore originalism is a failed enterprise any more than you can say indict any particular theory. Dred Scott is actually the first case that employed what's known as substantive due process, which is, is a theory that tends to be associated more with pragmatic approaches to the Constitution or living constitutionalists, but that's not one that they would want to claim. But I wouldn't say that Dred Scott is itself evidence of that being a failed enterprise. Any theory can, can not be true to itself. And I think to add to that, I think it's hard to indict originalism with Plessy. There's been plenty of originalist defenses of Brown, mm -hmm. which obviously reversed and eradicated that terrible decision. I want to point one thing out just for fun. There was one dissenter in Plessy. You know where he was from? No. Kentucky. <laughs> and you can make an argument. That's the actual original right, Harlow's dissent. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you said rapid fire, so I yeah. shut my mouth. <laughs> Given what we saw in the Kavanaugh confirmation process, do you think that future nominees might second might reject their, their that opportunity to avoid going through that same process? I think it's a, a real risk. I think the I think that the confirmation process has gotten very brutal, obviously. Um, there's just been increasingly, not, not just the Kavanaugh nomination, I think, um, you know, Justice Ginsburg recently said the way it is now is not the way it should be. It should be the way it was before. Even at the Court of Appeals level, it's really escalated. And I think that part of that is because people have a fundamental misunderstanding of the judicial role. And if you think that the judge who is going to be confirmed to a Court of Appeals or to the Supreme Court is going to be imposing his or her policy preferences on you, then it leads to kind of this all-in, we have to take this person down if we think we're going to disagree with the policy preferences. So I think it's really a feature of judges cultivating, in some instances, this perception of the judicial role, of the public's perception of this as the judicial role, and it's not the judicial role. Um, and it's it's very dangerous. I think it's, it's dangerous because um, for our courts to function and 
fulfill their role in society and to function well, people have to respect them. And if everyone thinks that courts are just policy-making arms, then they're not going to be respected, right? So, I, yeah, I think it's become a very to toxic situation. Yeah. Anything to add to that? I agree with everything. Yeah. She said it perfectly. Yeah. Toby, go ahead. Just following up on that, do you think then that's maybe even a better argument for why more judges should adopt an originalist uh, perspective, kind of leave, checking, making, making sure, or, or doing every, make, taking every step possible to kind of check your own personal biases at the door and look at the law objectively? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the exact reason, but, or one of many reasons, but a great reason. And, you know, originalism is a humbling enterprise. And as Amy said, there are great opinions from Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas on opposite sides mm -hmm. of issues, both trying to show their work and say why they're right. And it really is, it's hard, it's humbling, and you, it, one thing I'll, I'll tell you if I can go on for one minute about being a judge, I became a judge, and someone said to me, if you say flowers would look nice there, the next day, flowers will be and that can go to your head and you can start to think that you're this incredibly gifted person that you had a right to the job none of us have a right to these jobs people ask me did you become a judge too young because i was 37 when i was appointed and or nominated but i i would answer in the same way we're still hopefully young you all don't consider but what I would say is, you know what kept me humble and honest when I realized that that could happen? Because that can go to your head, all that power. Is you go home every day and your spouse and kids remind you you're just a father or mother, you're just a husband or wife, and your responsibility is to get dinner on the table, get me to class, get me to sports, get me wherever you gotta go. You're just a taxi cab driver. <laughs> and I don't care what you do during the day. When you're home, you fill that role. And they remind you, you're fallible. The best story I have is when I was, uh, when Nick was six, my youngest, I came home one day and he was doing something and it irritated me and I said, Nick, stop doing that. And he turned to me and he said, you're not the boss of me, mom is. <laughs> <laughs> and that just reminds me, that's in your place right away. I presume this is still true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's get one, one or two more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about Scalia and originalism. And in Scalia speaks, he, has, he seems to present this idea, which I find really interesting. He seems to claim that the state can support religion in general above non-religion. And I'm wondering if you guys think that's a really tenable position from an originalist perspective. I haven't done the work on that, which I think is what uh, you know, an originalist, an honest originalist answer is. I haven't dug in and do the, done the, the work on that in a way that Professor Munoz, I'm sure, has done more than I. So um, I guess I'll defer to Professor Munoz's <laughs> views. Whatever he says, I'm sure, is right. Some of the opinions in which Justice Scalia has said that, I think there is evidence for that, especially when you look at founding era practices, especially when you look at the fact that many states at the time did have established religions. You know, it says Congress shall establish no religion, so Justice Thomas's position is that it's not a, an amendment that's 
enforceable against the federal government because it was one that was designed to leave the states free to establish religions and not have Congress override that. So I do think from the founding era there's plenty of, of evidence that the state was supporting original religion over non-religion in a very general sense. But as it cashes out or applies to any individual circumstance, I'd have to do the historical work. And I think it's hard for originalists to answer any question specific. And today in my speech, I walked through the struggle I have in coming up with answers to certain questions and how hard it is. And I think Amy's point's exactly right, that we, we can't answer those questions. Like it's impossible without doing all the work. Again, if you go back and look at either of our originalist opinions, you'll see our own struggles as we work through to an ultimate conclusion. Can I, can I, we, we really need to uh, conclude. Can I ask just sort of a few personal questions? Sure. Uh, what do you do for fun? Chase my kids around. I mean, I, I, I love watching my kids play sports, do whatever they're doing. Uh, when Zach did mock trial, anything like that, you really give up a lot of your hobbies when you have kids. And so I do like to read when I have time. I love playing golf. I played once last year, as I told you. Um, so I, I feel like I'll get those back when my kids are gone until they have grandkids, and then I'm sure that's all I want to do. Yeah, similar. I mean, kids do occupy a lot, So, but some of my hobbies are now family hobbies. My most of my family, my husband and you know the majority of our children work out at a CrossFit gym in town, so we do CrossFit together, which is fun. Um, yeah, mock trial is big in our house, sports, reading to my kids. Um. Yeah, okay, the right answer was watching Notre Dame football. But that's <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, books or movies? You have a free night. You go out to a movie, you read a book. Um, we don't go out to movies anymore. We mostly just watch movies at home. But I will do a movie mostly because even if it's not something that Jesse and I are talking during, it's something that you know we can be sharing the same experience. And honestly, sometimes you know at the end of the day, after I've worked all day and then come home and been the taxi driver and the cook and the, the cleaned up everything, I just kind of don't have the bandwidth to necessarily sit down and, and read a dense book. I think, like Amy, if we're gonna, if Kim and I are gonna go out and we get a free night, which is rare, we go to dinner, not a movie, so we can talk and enjoy each other's company. If we're just too beat, we watch a movie at home. We don't go out to movies. If we go out, it's dinner. Um, okay, and this is one of my favorite questions. Um, book you read, maybe when you're in college or when you're young, that influenced you. Um, well, I read Scalia, so I hate to come back to Justice Scalia, but since it's influence, and Bible would be, of course, the easy answer and the one to give, but I'm going to give you a different one yeah, because I think that's unfair. I'm going to say Scalia put together a compilation on originalism that's really fascinating, and that's kind of what started to open my eyes to originalism is reading some of Scalia's stuff. And so Scalia and Thomas, I both admire greatly. One thing I really admire about them is they try to make originalism accessible. And Scalia's done a lot of that with his books and things. And if you ever get the privilege of hearing Justice Thomas do a Q&A, he's, he's a lot of fun and phenomenal to see. Yeah. Was this in law school that you were? You were 
really yeah. screwing up. Yeah. I'm going to go in a totally different direction and say something not law for a book. And I, and I don't want to say most influential because I think that's a hard question to answer. You know, there are so many books that influence you for so many different reasons. But when I was probably in early college, you know, so maybe in my you know, late teens, early 20s, I, one of the classes that I took on women authors, you know, there were two books, one Kate Chopin's The Awakening and one Willa Cather's My Antonia. And both of them were about women who won more successfully than the other protagonists, but women in the 19th century facing very different social environments um, where women had less freedom and how they responded to those environments. And, and Kate Chopin's The Awakening is set in New Orleans, which is my hometown, so I found that particular setting very interesting. But thinking about how women have responded to social structures um, is something that I've had to do a lot. And those books kind of started me thinking about the question. Judge Barrett, Judge Lavar, thank you so much. Thank you.